Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Chocolates are sweet, but they don't last long. Flowers are pretty, and then they're gone. So this Mother's Day, why not give your mum the gift that keeps on giving with Ancestry DNA? Ancestry DNA is on sale now for $99, a saving of $30. Ancestry DNA won't just tell your mum where her ancestors are from, it can also pinpoint the specific regions within those countries, connecting mum to the places where her story started. Ancestry DNA lets us look back across centuries to see where her family lived and where they moved. Combined with Ancestry's massive database of official records, this can open up fascinating migration stories. Who knows? Give your mum Ancestry DNA this Mother's Day and she might even discover living relatives. I know it's possible because it happened for me. Ancestry DNA is safe, easy to use and completely private. When your mum gets the kit, she just sends back a small saliva sample using the prepaid postal box provided. In a few weeks, she'll receive an email with the links to her results. From there, your mother has control of the data and how she uses it. There could be more to your mum's story. Piece it together with Ancestry DNA, now on sale. Terms apply. It's half an hour after sunset in Brisbane on Friday the 11th of November 1938. The city, like the rest of the country, has today commemorated the 20th anniversary of the armistice that ended the Great War. Now, opposite the Shrine of Remembrance, 30-year-old Marjorie Norville gets out of a car at Brisbane Central Station. The railway clock in the tower over her head tolls seven times. Standing five feet six inches with a medium build, Marjorie has short dark hair, a freckled complexion she tries to hide with makeup and striking blue eyes that you just can't help noticing. She cuts an attractive and stylish figure in a dark dress and white hat, her wrist adorned with a gold watch, fingers glittering with two diamond rings. Marjorie is a rarity for her era. A modern career woman, she walks the corridors of Queensland's parliament and she counts some of the state's most important politicians as her friends. Though her official title is typist in the Premier's department, she also acts as trusted social secretary to the Premier's wife. Now, at Brisbane's main railway station, smart, busy and popular Marjorie is a woman on a mission. A mission that's cloaked in secrecy and one that will take her out of the city for the next few days. Marjorie Norville is already well known in Brisbane, but soon her name will be known all over Australia. I'm Michael Adams, and this is Forgotten Australia. 38,000 people. That's how many Australians are reported missing every year. Fortunately, the majority of these are found safe and sound within days. Sadly, others turn up dead, the victims of accidents, self-harm, or foul play. Then there are the missing people who seem to have simply vanished into thin air. Police follow leads, interview witnesses and suspects, Inquests are held and evidence heard, 
yet nothing can bring them back or even conclusively say what became of them. Some 2,000 Australians are considered long-term missing people. A handful of such disappearances, like the Beaumont children and anti-drugs campaigner Donald McKay, are well known. But few missing persons mysteries have endured for as long as the case of Marjorie Norville. One of five children, Marjorie was born in March 1908. Her father James had worked as a wharf labourer since the turn of the century and was prominent in the union. Her mother Rose looked after their modest middle-class home in the inner Brisbane suburb of West End. Marjorie was a good student, making the honours list of her state school and doing well in her music exams. At 16, in 1924, she obtained 18th place in the Queensland Public Service Examinations and started work as a typist in the Education Department. She enjoyed going out with her workplace's social club and attended the coming-of-age parties of her older friends. Attractive and charming, Marjorie was just 16 or 17 when she met and started dating a widowed optician named James East, who was nearly 30 years older than she was. They would drive around in his car, which he sometimes loaned to her, and go to the pictures regularly on a Saturday night. He bestowed diamond rings and a fur on his young friend. Even though they weren't an exclusive item, at least from her point of view, James and Marjorie would see each other for more than a decade. In March 1929, Marjorie celebrated her coming of age at a dance attended by her sisters, Grace and Gladys, and her many friends. Now an adult, Marjorie enjoyed even more of a social life. She'd be found at bridge evenings, club dances, the races and theatre premieres. She played golf and tennis, smoked and drank socially. As was typical of the city's socialites, Brisbane's newspaper society columns carefully detailed her fashion choices. Miss Marjorie Norville matched her delphinium patterned frock with a halo of natural flowers, read one such item. And to keep herself stylish, Marjorie from the early 1930s relied on the talents of dressmaker Mrs Annie Stevens. While Marjorie enjoyed everything Brisbane society had to offer, she was also an intelligent and diligent worker who rose steadily in the public service. After time with the Education Department, Justice Department and Department of Lands, she transferred to the Premier's Department in October 1932, just a few months after William Forgan Smith's Labor government took office. When Premier Forgan Smith went interstate or abroad, which he did frequently, his deputy, Percy Pease, would be acting Premier. With this the case in June 1934, Marjorie was chosen by Percy Pease to assist him at the government's Loan Council. This was a historic moment for Queensland. Marjorie was the first woman to attend a meeting of this council and was also the youngest person to ever enter the assembly. She was thrilled to bits, she told the Courier-Mail newspaper. Out of hours, Marjorie also mixed with movers and shakers. In the 1932 summer holidays, she vacationed with John Dash, the Minister for Transport, and his family at their Ocean Beach apartment. By mid-1935, Marjorie's duties had expanded to include acting as social secretary to the Premier's wife, Euphemia Forgan-Smith. That entailed organising and promoting Mrs Forgan-Smith's many charity events. One such gala was a Halloween ball held at the Bellevue Hotel to benefit the Creche and Kindergarten Association, which was supported by all the city's prominent matrons. Marjorie organised the night of frightful fun, with spooky decorations, 
apple dunking competitions and dancing demonstrations. At another charity function, this one a bridge night, Truth newspaper reported that Marjorie did everything from poor tea to mark scorers. As the Truth Society columnist commented, she was charming and courteous and a favourite with everybody, a grand little ally to Mrs Premier. Working for Mrs Forgan Smith also saw Marjorie name-checked in the Bulletin and the Australian Women's Weekly. Professionally, Marjorie had a glittering career, but personally, there was darkness in her life. Her father died in 1933, and in 1935, her mother's mental illness saw her become estranged from Marjorie and her other children. Following this bitter family rift, Marjorie and her sister Grace and brother Roy moved out together, sharing a flat in South Brisbane and then an apartment at the Whitehaven Flats on Swanky Riverview Terrace at Kangaroo Point. Marjorie would never speak to her mother again. Perhaps Marjorie saw Mrs. Forgan Smith as a mother figure, with the two spending much time together. In early 1936, the truth reported, Mrs. Forgan Smith is not allowing Forgy to do all the jaunting. Mrs. Premier leaves next Tuesday for the North and may be away over six weeks. A comprehensive tour, including the whole of the Sunshine Route to the Atherton Tablelands and a stay on the Barrier Reef. On her way back, the Premier's wife will stay for a while at Mackay, where she was born. Mrs. Forgan-Smith will be accompanied by Marjorie Norville from the Premier's office. Lucky Marjorie. Lucky Marjorie was a frequent traveller for work and for pleasure. In April 1936, she accompanied Deputy Premier Percy Pease and his wife to Sydney for two weeks. A few months later, Marjorie took her black and white sports car on a 10-day road trip to northern New South Wales. At her Kangaroo Point apartment, Marjorie often entertained friends for games afternoons or dance and dinner evenings. A charming hostess, she was always dressed beautifully, decorating her lounge and dining room with a profusion of flowers. By the mid-1930s, Marjorie's best friend was Messia Doran. Messia was also single, social and a rising public servant. In late 1937, the two girls moved into the Albert Hotel, one of the city's social hubs, located next door to the Tivoli Theatre and looking out on King George Square. Soon after, Marjorie and Mercia went on holiday with the Premier's wife, the Deputy Premier and his wife, all of them staying at the Surfers Paradise Hotel. At a big party there, Marjorie met a man named Jack Caton. Like her longtime friend James East, Jack was an older widower and worked as a travelling representative of the Ford Motor Company. Marjorie and Jack danced that night, and they started dating. They appeared quite intimate. Visiting the Albert Hotel, Marjorie's sister Grace saw Jack lying on Marjorie's bed with his shoes and coat off. Grace was surprised because she knew her sister was also still seeing James East. Jack Caton stayed at the Albert Hotel at least twice, once taking an adjoining room to Marjorie's. This was even though he had his own house in Brisbane. Jack and Marjorie also met up again at Easter in Surfers Paradise. As Jack travelled a lot for business, she wrote to him every few weeks. In mid-1938, he later said, one such letter told him she wanted to break off their relationship because she had strong feelings for another man. The last time Jack Caton said he saw Marjorie was in mid-August 1938 at a ball at the Bellevue Hotel. She apparently snubbed him, though, he said, she phoned him a few days later to apologise. 
But Marjorie's sister Grace said Marjorie told her that she had broken it off with Jack because he wasn't honest. Around this time, Marjorie was also friendly with Dr. Peter English, who was yet another well-to-do widower. They played golf, but he later said they were never alone together. Then there was John Carey, a shop assistant from Gympie, who Marjorie dated casually from the start of 1938. He was only five years older than Marjorie, though he was married. Albert Townsend, the Canberra-based Chief Investigations Officer with the Customs Service, was also married, and nearly 20 years her senior. Marjorie assisted him on his official visits to Brisbane. Another rumoured lover was George Pollock, veteran Labor politician, Member of Parliament and Speaker of the Legislative Assembly. George was also nearly 20 years older than Marjorie and, though married, had been apart from his wife for the past 15 years under a deed of separation. Marjorie tried to keep her love life discreet, but it was well known around Brisbane that she liked the company of men. What she didn't know was that she was being watched. Two night cleaners at the Tivoli Theatre had a clear view into her room at the Albert Hotel. For about six months, these creeps peeped by night at Marjorie in varying states of undress. They saw her entertaining five or six different men. Marjorie would have gentlemen callers two or three times a week, with these visitors often staying until two or three o'clock in the morning. On August 15, 1938, Marjorie wrote to a relative that she was feeling sick. I have not been to many functions lately, she wrote. I've been sick on and off for three weeks, and if I do not improve this week, I will go and see Dr. Luddy. I have a feeling that I want to vomit and cannot eat much. I have been home 80% of the nights during the last three weeks and every weekend in bed. In fact, last Saturday night was my first Saturday night out for some time. But Marjorie seemed to bounce back to health and in the second half of August was back on the social scene. Miss Marjorie Norville wore red rosebuds with her frock of snowdrift white lace, reported the Courier Mail of her outfit at a huge labour ball at the town hall that she helped to organise for Mrs Forgan Smith. Though Marjorie's high-profile role came with plenty of perks, it's also not hard to imagine the smart young woman chafing ever so slightly at article after article that gave the Premier's wife all the glory for her hard work. While we don't know for sure how Marjorie felt about this state of affairs, she had told her sisters that she was getting a job at the Agent General's office in London. She even sold her butte little sports car, banking the proceeds in anticipation of making her move to England. But the job fell through. Marjorie then turned to Canberra-based customs investigator Albert Townsend for a reference so she could apply to work at Australia House in London. With that still pending in September 1938, Marjorie took a vacation with her best friend, Marcia Doran. They went to Spencer's Gulf in South Australia for what Marjorie called a delightfully lazy holiday aboard the steamship Munta. Prior to leaving, she saw Dr Peter English and obtained a prescription for capsules that were, ostensibly, for the prevention of seasickness. Not that Marjorie needed them, because she noted that the waters were calm on their eight-day cruise. Steaming by night, they called in at a different port each morning. They saw Port Lincoln, Port Pirie, Port Augusta and enjoyed swimming, sunbaking and scenic drives, including a motor tour of the Flinders Ranges. With so much scenic beauty all around us, plenty to do and heaps to see, 
It was no surprise to find that dull moments are not known on this cruise, Marjorie said. On the return voyage, Marjorie met up with her sister Gladys in Melbourne before arriving back in Brisbane on the 17th of October 1938. But now the woman who had been such a regular on Brisbane's social scene was again laying low. Unusually for Marjorie, she wasn't mentioned in the newspapers even once over the next three weeks. James East thought she'd come back from Spencer's Gulf looking a little heavier, though he thought the extra weight suited her. In late October, Marjorie saw her sister Grace and complained again of stomach trouble. She also told Monsieur Doran and her hotel maid that she was feeling sick each morning. At this time, Marjorie got her dressmaker, Annie Mary Stevens, to make a baby's carrying coat, which she said was a present for a friend who had recently given birth. Her dressmaker also thought Marjorie had put on weight around the hips. In early November, Marjorie confided to Monsieur Doran that she had been given a mission to drive Mrs. Forgan Smith's sister, a patient at Willowburn Mental Asylum in Toowoomba, to Maruchidor or Caloundra. But Marjorie soon after told Messiah that the trip had been delayed by a week. Meeting with her sister Gladys on the 9th of November, Marjorie said she was going away to the North Coast for a few days on confidential business for Mr. Forgan Smith and that he'd told her to apply for leave saying she was going to Bundaberg to look after a sick relative. On the morning of Friday the 11th of November, Marjorie went to work as usual. There, she applied for emergency leave, saying she had to go to Bundaberg to visit a sick relative and planned to return to work on Wednesday or Thursday at the latest. She told Mrs Forgan-Smith the same story. But her aunt in Bundaberg had received a letter from Marjorie that week saying she was going to Southport. At lunch, Marjorie saw Messia, who later said her friend didn't seem to have a worry in the world. Marjorie asked Messia to arrange the loan of a big umbrella for use at a tea party she was organising for the following Friday. Will you miss me, she said, laughing, before telling her friend she'd see her on Wednesday. During the day, Marjorie withdrew £30 from her savings account and changed other notes to the value of £20. £50 is the equivalent of $4,500 today and represented about three months of Marjorie's salary. That afternoon, Marjorie phoned James East and asked him to pick her up at the Albert Hotel that evening and drive her to Central Station. Marjorie also called her sister Grace and told her she was going up north for a few days. At 3pm, she called her sister Gladys to say she was leaving soon. The sisters discussed a letter Marjorie had that belonged to Gladys. Marjorie promised to post it back. She did, along with a note that read, Cannot type a reply, we will be leaving about 3.30. On receiving this note the following day, Gladys was puzzled because she thought Marjorie was going north alone. On the Friday afternoon, Marjorie also saw her friend John Kerry, who was departing that night on the train for Gympie. He said goodbye to her and she appeared cheerful. Marjorie finished work at 5pm and returned to the Albert Hotel to have dinner. There, she saw Mrs Merle Weller, licensee of the hotel, at around 6.20pm. Mrs. Weller said Marjorie was in the highest of spirits. In a joking tone, she told her she was going to Bundaberg to do a little detective work for her department and would be staying at the Royal Hotel there for about four days. Mrs. Weller didn't see Marjorie leave that evening. James East said he found Marjorie ready to go when he arrived around 6.45pm. 
he carried her small attaché case down to his car and drove her to Central Railway Station. Don't wait till the train goes, she said. Go along and play your bridge, which she knew was James E's habit each Friday night at the Tats Club. Then Marjorie got out of the car. I will see you on Thursday, she said. Don't forget the tickets. This, James East later said, was in reference to a show they were seeing the following week. James East watched Marjorie Norville walk towards the entrance of the railway platform. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewellery from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Six days later, on Thursday the 16th of November, Marjorie hadn't returned to work. Her office sent a cable to Bundaberg asking her to explain her absence. That night, the Premier's wife held a function, and Marjorie wasn't there to do her duty. On Saturday, her worried sisters contacted the police, who began inquiries that day. At this time, Brisbane's Criminal Investigations Bureau was headed by Inspector Alf Jessen, who had recently been criticised in Parliament for exerting political control over his branch on behalf of the state government. The disappearance of a woman who'd worked for the Premier and his wife was clearly going to be a sensitive case. The police searched Marjorie's office desk, which yielded no clues, though documents they found indicated that Marjorie had fully expected to be back at work by Thursday. Searching her hotel room, the police deduced, with Marcia Doran's assistance, that Marjorie had only taken a pair of silk pyjamas and a kimono with her in the attaché case. She'd left behind three corsets, each bigger than the last. These corsets apparently showed stretching, and Marjorie had removed two bones from one of them. That, along with Messiah telling them Marjorie had suffered stomach trouble on recent mornings, led police to suspect the missing woman had been quite a few months into a pregnancy. A pregnancy she appeared to want to terminate. This was the conclusion police came to after finding pills containing quinine and strychnine, which back then were used in high doses by women trying to induce miscarriages. There were only three tablets left. 27 had already been taken. Mysteriously, though, this medication had been prescribed for a Mrs Carter on August the 16th. That seemed to indicate that right at the time she'd split up with Jack Caton and just when she'd written to a relative about feeling sick, Marjorie had obtained these tablets under a false name. Police also found a torn-up letter in Marjorie's hotel room. Pasting it back together, they found it was dated November 9th and from Albert Townsend. He had addressed it, Dearest Marjorie, and signed off, From yours ever, Albert. The letter was mostly about his recurring illness, but also included the sentences, I have always been happy with you, and the question, Are you quite well again, dear? Albert had underlined the word quite. Questioned by police, Albert Townsend claimed that, as a married man, his interest in Marjorie was restricted to what they had in common in regard to sickness and politics. 
Police interviews with Marjorie's sisters, relatives, friends, workmates, along with James East, Monsieur Doran and hotel keeper Merle Weller, showed Marjorie had gone to bizarre lengths to keep her true destination and purpose a secret. Visiting an aunt in Bundaberg, going to Southport, driving Mrs. Forgan Smith's mental patient sister, doing detective work for her department, the different stories were bewildering. Every bit as bewildering was how this well-known young woman seemed to have vanished. Marjorie knew many railway workers. Not one had seen her or sold her a ticket. Critically, there was no train to Bundaberg until 9pm, two hours after she'd been dropped off by James East. Furthermore, the railway station entrance she'd used led to southbound trains. James East was interviewed every day, indicating that police considered him a suspect. He said that he had no idea there was no train to Bundaberg until 9pm. He also claimed not to have been to the train station for about 15 years and had no idea that Marjorie had used the wrong entrance. Speaking to the Truth newspaper, James East emphatically denied that Marjorie had told him she was going to Bundaberg. She did not mention Bundaberg, he said. She made no mention of her destination. Despite mounting concern, the police didn't make a public announcement about Marjorie for another three days. By then, memories were fading and the trail was getting ever colder. On the 22nd of November 1938, 11 days after she was last seen, Marjorie was front page news. The Commissioner of Police, Mr C.J. Carroll, urged anyone who had seen her to contact their local police station. Police searched holiday resorts, private and public hospitals, hotels and lodging houses. By the end of the week, it was the biggest search in the state's history. But increasingly, the police feared Marjorie had met with foul play. The chances of her being found alive, they said, were extremely slender. The best they hoped for was that she was sick somewhere, unable to communicate, or that perhaps she was the victim of amnesia. A £500 reward was posted for information leading to the discovery of Marjorie or her remains. By Saturday, police had interviewed between 700 and 800 taxi drivers, working on the theory that Marjorie might have hailed a cab from Central Station after James East departed. That day, they searched Moreton Bay foreshores because it was speculated that if Marjorie had been buried in sand, then Friday's strong winds might have uncovered her corpse. Marjorie's disappearance was now national news, with police in Sydney and Adelaide following up leads. New South Wales newspaper Labor Daily helpfully decided that Marjorie had probably fallen prey to a white slave gang who had its headquarters in Sydney and offices in all major cities. Information poured in. A farmer thought he'd given her food and directions on the Yandons Coolum Beach Road two days after she disappeared. While police discounted his report, he remained adamant he'd seen Marjorie. Another farmer saw what he thought was her body on the back of a truck. It turned out to be a wax dummy being transported to a hairdressing salon. A fisherman found an old attaché case that was nothing like the one Marjorie had taken with her. A woman going to a picnic saw a sack in a watery ditch and reported it. A butcher told police he'd been driving the Gympie Road on November the 15th and seen a fire that had given off the smell of burning flesh. 
By November 28th, a week into the search, six mounted police had covered 5,000 acres around Redcliffe and Sandgate. It was hard going, with horses sinking into swamps and the cops injured in falls and relentlessly attacked by mosquitoes. On Sunday, November 29th, thousands of Brisbane people organised themselves into unofficial search parties, scouring remote bush and beach spots. The search for Marjorie that day also took to the air after the RAAF volunteered a seagull amphibian plane. Flight officer Max Weiber and two crewmates, aircraftsman Albert Milner and Eric Everett, were joined by Queensland Water Police Constable George Young. News photographers snapped Constable Young climbing the plane's gangway. It should be all right, Constable Young said. These Air Force boys know how to handle their planes. The Seagull took off just after midday. Its mission was to fly low so that Constable Young and the airmen could look for any sign of Marjorie on the dozens of small islands at the southern end of Moreton Bay. Seeing no sign of her, the Seagull flew up the Albert River towards Beanley. The plane's solo, crew members waved to locals looking up from their yards. Constable Young and the airmen peered intently into the mangrove line banks below. No one in the cockpit noticed the high-tension electricity cable stretching across the river near Alberton Ferry. There was a brilliant flash as the seagull hit and severed this wire, tearing off one of the plane's landing floats. The seagull flew on, with a long live cable caught on its wings and trailing to the river where it sent up blue flames when it touched the water's surface. Then the plane veered, yanked to earth by the cable, smashing through mangroves, wings tearing off as the fuselage exploded into flame. Everyone aboard burned to death. Whoever was responsible for Marjorie Norville's disappearance now had four more lives on his conscience. Despite this tragedy and a week's worth of fruitless searching, police said they weren't going to give up. Whether true or not, Brisbane's police at this time boasted that they had traced and found every Queensland girl or woman who had been reported missing to them, and they weren't about to ruin that perfect record. Under Queensland law, Marjorie's body had to be found or police had to establish beyond doubt that she was dead before a coronial inquest could be held. Police obtained a list of everyone who died in Queensland recently and interviewed their relatives, ensuring Marjorie hadn't been buried under a false name. They instigated an Australia-wide check of large luggage left at train stations that might be big enough to hold a body. More than 10,000 leaflets were circulated along with photographs of Marjorie. The country near the coast from Caloundra to Coolangatta was thoroughly searched. At the end of November, newspaper reports said police favoured the theory that Marjorie had died after seeking medical treatment. This was, in the discreet language of the day, the police saying that she'd perished after seeking out an abortion. That Marjorie had only taken pyjamas and a kimono did point to her expecting to spend a few days in bed. Police now started watching doctors who were suspected of carrying out illegal abortions. How this was supposed to help wasn't clear. Any guilty medical man had had more than two weeks to dispose of Marjorie's body. The search continued through December. The mounted police wound up covering more than 50,000 acres and riding some 3,000 miles. In mid-December, Henry Gaggan, a fisherman, contacted police to say he remembered seeing Marjorie at the Caloundra holiday home of Dr Arthur Ross on the 12th of November, the day after she disappeared. 
He'd called on the house because he'd been told the doctor was there for the weekend and might want some fish. Marjorie answered the door, called to some women inside about whether anything was needed and then bought about six pounds of fish. You need not look further afield than Calandra as she is planted in the sand here somewhere, he told police. The cop who investigated was Detective Sergeant Frank Bischoff, later to become corrupt Queensland Police Commissioner. Detective Sergeant Bischoff hastily decided that the woman Henry Gagan had seen was Mrs Ross, though he didn't make an effort to conclusively establish her actual whereabouts that weekend or those of Dr Ross. Then, just after Christmas, a man at Wellington Point got the fright of his life when he touched a woman's head while swimming in four or five feet of water. Police arrived. No body was found and it was thought the spooked man's hand had just touched a sea sponge. This was just one of the 110 times that Marjorie's corpse was briefly thought to have been discovered. In 1939, a message in a bottle was found by two men fishing at Southport. The note read... Would the person finding this bottle please inform the police that I received £50 to dispose of the body of Miss Norville. She was dumped in the bay near Amity Point on 16-11-38 and I have since gone to NZ. The police concluded the letter was a hoax. With all leads exhausted and no new witnesses or evidence, the search for Marjorie Norville wound down. At Brisbane CIB, Marjorie's case file was the biggest in the police records room. It stood more than five feet high, contained over 6,000 pages and more than three million words. Yet this massive file had stubbornly refused to yield the vital breakthrough that would solve the mystery of Marjorie. In early 1939, as the search was winding down, George Pollock, the Speaker of the House, was losing his mind. Seven years earlier, he'd had an agonising gastrointestinal complaint that led to surgery. Since then, he'd often suffered pain, and this, it was thought, was what had led to his depression. But George Pollock's depression had now become suicidal derangement. In January 1939, he was admitted to hospital for a nervous breakdown. Upon his release, he continued to complain to his daughter about his poor, tortured mind. Adding to his woes, on March the 21st, a writ of defamation was served against George Pollock by a young woman named Honor Sparks, though what the defamation was claimed to be and the damages sought wasn't revealed. On March the 22nd, George Pollock said to his daughter, Darling, won't you pray that I won't have to endure this pain much longer? There is something pressing on my brain. On the morning of Friday the 24th of March, George Pollock burst into fits of hysterical laughter at the breakfast table. Seemingly recovered, he went to work in his office at Parliament House and chatted to his daughter, making plans for a walk with her after she had her lunch. Instead, he locked his office door and blew his brains out with a shotgun. George Pollock left a note. It read, A complete nervous and mental breakdown. Cannot carry on. Too much pain. George Pollock. Underneath was a postscript. My poor, tortured brain. Goodbye to my loved ones. An inquest was hastily conducted. It concentrated solely on George Pollock's physical condition. Even though the coroner who conducted the autopsy testified that he didn't think the man's recent pain would have been particularly bad. Truth newspaper complained about how rushed the inquest was 
and that it didn't delve into the mental and emotional reasons for George Pollock's sudden decline and suicide. As shown in Marjorie Norville, The Girl a Railway Station Swallowed, a small, self-published 2014 monograph by retired Brisbane journalist Ken Blanche, an inkblot in George Pollock's suicide note meant that the final phrase actually read, Goodbye to my loved one. Whether this inkblot was deliberate or accidental can't be known. Ken Blanche thought this might have been a reference to Marjorie as the loved one, yet he also concluded that George Pollock's medical condition would have meant any relationship with her was platonic. But this wasn't the case. Just a week after George Pollock's suicide, Truth Newspaper published an exclusive interview with Honor Sparks, a 24-year-old woman who'd been his mistress. This was the girl who had issued the defamation writ against him days before he died. She said she'd met George Pollock when she was 19 and had been in love with him, though he'd treated her cruelly. Honor said she used to see him at Parliament House. One visit there ended in what she called a scene and she later found herself in a private hospital. This was almost certainly a reference to George Pollock arranging for her to have an illegal abortion. In the eight months before his death, Honor said, their relationship had soured and George Pollock had used his political power and the compliant Brisbane police to try to shut her up. Do you know, she told Truth, that they tried to certify me as insane. They tried to say I was mad. Can you imagine anything more terrible than that? All sorts of attempts were made, and policemen accompanied me home more than once. How humiliating. In Ken Blanche's book, he convincingly demonstrates that George Pollock was friends with Dr. Arthur Ross, the high-profile Brisbane medico who had a lucrative sideline in illegal abortions. And it was at Dr. Ross's house in Caloundra on the 12th of November 1938 that fisherman Henry Gagan had reported seeing Marjorie. But this line of inquiry was never properly followed, either at the time or later. There was a brief flurry of interest in the Marjorie Norville case in November 1940 when the bones of a woman aged around 30 were found in scrub seven miles from Blackbutt. But police determined these weren't her remains. Meanwhile, Marjorie's mother petitioned the courts so she could swear to the death of her daughter and claim her £450 estate. It wasn't until 1942 that Marjorie made headlines again, courtesy of Member of the Legislative Assembly, Frank Bombshell Barnes. This eccentric Queensland politician, whose trademark was a pith helmet, made sensational claims that he had information about the case. He asked Parliament to change the laws so a coronial inquest could be held without Marjorie Norville's body having been found. Parliament did change the law and a coronial inquest began in May 1943. Over three weeks, 20 witnesses were called. Marjorie's sisters, Monsieur Doran, the hotel keeper, Merle Weller, they all repeated their stories. Mr Forgan Smith, who was no longer Premier, emphatically denied having told Marjorie to concoct the Bundaberg story to cover up her true mission. He also said that he barely knew the missing woman. Meanwhile, Mrs Forgan Smith said she'd always thought Marjorie truthful, but denied having a sister or any relative in any mental institution. Dr Arthur Ross wasn't called. 
He'd been arrested and interned as a possible Japanese agent in 1942. Even 80 years later, simply from reading newspaper reports of the coronial inquest, inconsistencies are glaring. James East, despite having emphatically told the truth that Marjorie had not mentioned Bundaberg to him, now told the inquest she had told him she was going there to visit a sick aunt. He wasn't queried about this contradiction. He also said he hadn't known she was pregnant, that he couldn't have been the father, and that he had no idea Marjorie was seeing other men. Jack Caton denied that he could have impregnated Marjorie and said that he'd never been in her hotel room late at night. He admitted to having embraced her, but denied going any further. Albert Townsend was subpoenaed, but didn't appear on medical grounds, providing a certificate saying he'd been bedridden since 1941. By letter, he also denied that he'd been intimate with Marjorie. Widowed, estranged, married or single, it seemed every man in Marjorie's life was simply a good friend. Not that anyone believed this, thanks to the voyeuristic Tivoli Theatre cleaners. Only one of these men testified, but he shamefacedly confessed to his creepy peeping on Marjorie and her male visitors. Frank Bombshell Barnes, who had made the coronial inquest happen, detonated proceedings with his wild claims. He sensationally said that Marjorie had been shanghaied to California in order to stop her blackmailing Mr. Forgan Smith, and that there had been a cover-up ever since. He made other allegations of witness tampering and political control of the police involved in the investigation. When Bombshell refused to divulge his sources, he was fined and sent to jail for contempt. Returning to court, he claimed a detective named Smith and a citizen named Jones had told him these stories. Bombshell admitted that what he had told the inquest was hearsay, he also couldn't provide any proof that Detective Smith and Citizen Jones actually existed, and if they did, that they were even police or knew anything about the case. If Frank Bombshell Barnes had genuinely wanted to know what happened to Marjorie, rather than just use his time in the spotlight to hurt his political enemies, what he said and did had the opposite effect, shifting the focus to wild conspiracy theories when the inquest should have been pressing police and witnesses harder to zero in on the actual conspiracy. Clearly, there was a conspiracy. Marjorie had fallen pregnant by someone who wasn't confessing culpability. She had then died at the hand of a person or persons unknown who disposed of her body. And after three weeks, this was the coroner's conclusion, that Marjorie Norval had gone to an unknown location to procure an abortion and had not left the premises alive. But this was nothing people hadn't already thought way back in 1938. 80 years later, the mystery of Marjorie Norville is as frustrating and bewildering as it was in the weeks after her disappearance and during the 1943 inquest. Why did she tell so many different stories about where she was going and what she was doing? She was an independent young woman who travelled frequently, if she told everyone she was going to Bundaberg to visit a sick relative, it's unlikely anyone would have questioned her further. Her first story, about transporting Mrs. Forgan Smith's mentally ill relative, was so specific that it begs the question, why tell a lie that, if discovered, could have ended her career? James East's account was all that anyone had to go on about the last known 15 minutes of Marjorie Norville's life. But some angles of his story didn't make sense. 
There were his contradictory accounts of whether she had told him she was going to Bundaberg. And his statement to the Truth newspaper saying he didn't know her destination beggars belief. Who takes a friend to the railway station without asking where they're going? Further, why had Marjorie even called him for a lift? It was just 400 metres from her hotel to the station, and she was carrying only a small attaché case. She could have walked it in minutes. And why didn't James East find it odd that she was taking so little luggage? The hotel keeper, Mrs Merle Weller, didn't see Marjorie after 6.20pm. James East said he picked her up at 6.45, but we have to rely on him for that because no one saw them leave together. It's possible he drove her not to the railway station, but to an abortionist and then lied to cover his own complicity when she died. Jack Caton, meanwhile, was adamant during the inquest that he'd only seen Marjorie three times at the most in their relationship, but his testimony that he'd seen her at least twice at Surfer's Paradise and had twice been in her hotel room contradicted that. How could he be so sure that he hadn't gotten Marjorie pregnant? His testimony, like that of the other men, was allowed to protect his honour by claiming they were just friends. And who was the man Marjorie said she was involved with when she broke off with Jack Caton? Who were the other men in Marjorie's hotel room? As for George Pollock, there seems to be more to his sudden descent into suicidal depression and derangement than the physical pain he'd known already for seven years. Certainly, if he was involved with Marjorie and sent her to Dr. Ross for an abortion and she'd died during the procedure, he could have been racked by guilt. Guilt intensely magnified by the deaths of the four men aboard the Seagull amphibian plane. George Pollock's alleged conduct with Honor Sparks, sending her to a private hospital, using police intimidation and asylum incarceration, speaks to a man who might have been ruthless enough to make Marjorie disappear, but who soon found himself unable to live with the consequences. Dr. Ross, meanwhile, was well-connected. Later military reports on Dr. Ross, as uncovered by author Ken Blanche, point to one of the Forgan Smith's children having referred at least one client to the abortionist. Much later, controversial police figure Frank Bischoff would tell Ken Blanche he felt sure that Dr. Ross had killed Marjorie. But he didn't explain why he'd been so reluctant to pursue Henry Gaggin's evidence that he'd seen Marjorie at Dr. Ross's home in Caloundra the day after she disappeared. Ken Blanche concluded that at that time, Frank Bischoff had been covering for higher-ups, including Premier Forgan Smith. All we can know with some degree of certainty is, one of Marjorie's lovers impregnated her, she, likely with the help of this man and perhaps other well-connected people, arranged to have an abortion. For reasons unknown, she felt compelled to, and or was instructed to, create a smokescreen of stories. She packed light and intended to be back in Brisbane by Wednesday or Thursday at the latest. Someone killed Marjorie, accidentally or intentionally, and then covered it up by disposing of the body, possibly with the help of further people. That cover-up directly led to the deaths of the four men aboard the RAAF search plane. Whoever was involved, they never broke their silence. But Marjorie may one day speak from beyond the grave. In June 2016, human remains were found in a park in Tenerife Drive in inner-city Brisbane, briefly stirring interest in Marjorie Norville. But it wasn't her. Yet it's possible that she's still out there somewhere, her body perhaps bearing or buried with clues that could finally solve the mystery of who killed 
Marjorie Norval. I'm Michael Adams, and you've been listening to Forgotten Australia. This podcast was written and produced by me in Katoomba, New South Wales, Australia, on land traditionally owned by the Gundungurra people. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe, share, tell your friends, and head over to ForgottenAustralia.com for more episodes and more information. Please look out for my book, Australia's Sweetheart, which is the story of Australia's forgotten movie star, Mary Maguire. It's published by Hachette Australia in January 2019 and is available for pre-order wherever you get your books. Thanks for listening. Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.